I don't know why, maybe it goes back to Mad Magazine and the comic books or something like that, but I've always had this kind of funky drawing style, you know, that almost looks a little cartoony sometimes. And for a long time, I resented when somebody would tell me that. And then I started to realize, no, that's, that's not something to resent. That's my gift. Welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. On this show, I have conversations with artists whose work inspires me. I am an urban sketcher. I like to draw my world as I observe it in public places. And consequently, a lot of the artists I admire are also fascinated by their environments. On his website, my guest today says, I never saw myself as Monet in the studio. I wanted to be Anthony Bourdain with a sketchbook. What was the meaning of art in James Richard's life? How far was Monet and fine art and studio art from the world in which he grew up? What did it mean to be like Anthony Bourdain with a sketchbook? In a lot of ways, this conversation is the long process of unpacking this wonderful quote. Storyteller, artist, urban designer, architect, educator, author, speaker, Jim has worn many hats in an epic and fascinating life. If you've never met him or taken his courses or seen his work, you may still have seen his very popular book, Freehand Drawing and Discovery. How did he assume so many roles? We speak about comic books, about growing up in Louisiana, and we learn what it means to create a life that reflects your values and the wonderful places we can go when we are guided by our interests and curiosities. This conversation is full of quotes, big ideas, little ideas, and hilarious anecdotes. I did my best to take note of most of them and include them as extended show notes in my publication, The Sneaky Art Post. To read it, find the link in the show notes. James and I spoke for a little over three hours and there were so many wonderful moments that I wanted to make sure no one misses a thing. This is why I'm releasing this conversation in two parts. Part two releases next week. Good morning, Jim, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I am so happy to speak with you today. It's really a pleasure. I, I have a great appreciation for the conversations from kind of our urban sketching community that you put out in there into the world. I think that they're, they're great stories to share, so thank you. And doing this podcast, Jim, has been a very interesting exercise for me, and recently I've had the opportunity to think back about why I'm doing what I'm doing. I think of it as a periodic mental exercise to reassess the directions I'm going. And to begin, this was simply an answer to my need to keep learning in the pandemic. So I wanted to speak to the artists I knew about, the artists that I was uh, disconnected from because of the pandemic. And I wanted to just keep picking their brains with the things that I thought would help me become a better artist. And in the process of 
inculcating this habit of having long, deep conversations with people, I uncovered so much more and I realized that I was learning so much more than I had bargained for. It turned out to be a much bigger deal for me and for my listeners, but really I'm thinking of myself for me than I had ever expected. And part of that is that I'm an independent artist and I'm an independent writer and the word these days is creator. So I'm an independent creator and I'm trying to figure out my way in the world. And a lot of our fellow artists and colleagues in the urban sketching community are in the same space at different junctures in their life, trying to navigate the challenges and design their own way of living to integrate art and all these associated practices with it into their life in a meaningful, positive, useful way. So I'm fascinated by what you do. And I am fascinated by the fact that you have multiple job titles, as you recently described uh, in an interview that I read. You uh, spoke about being an architect, about being an educator, about being an artist, and about being an author. So I want to sort of start this with this juggling act and ask you what it's like to juggle so many job titles, what it's like to, to speak about yourself and to tell people what you do. Well... I, I guess I was exposed to the idea real early on when I was in college that I was studying landscape architecture. And in most of the United States, that's a you know registered professional thing that you've got to pass exams for and you're registered by the state because there's health, safety and welfare involved in it. But we also had these fantastic drawing classes. And one of them was taught by a gentleman who was both a fine artist and a registered professional. And he taught us on location sketching all semester long. And we, we tied that to the work that we were doing. The more you draw from observation, the more you build that mental image bank and the better designer you'll be. Uh, but at the end of the semester, he had us mount all of our drawings and match them and stand them up in front of the university library and sell them during lunch. And I, I, I don't think he thought we'd make any money from that. He was too smart for that. But it kind of forced us to think of ourselves not only as professional designers, but as artists as well, and that you didn't have to separate those things, that it was all just part and parcel of living a creative life. And that made it easier for me, I think, when other things came along to say, well, this isn't about one job title or another job title. This is just about another creative challenge. And I know how to get into creative challenges, not solve them before I know what they are, but how to get into them and define what they are. And um, it's just been a marvelous way to, to work and to live and not feel like anything's really off limits. Uh, it's, it's been frustrating sometimes for some of the other professionals that I deal with when I'm working with, with architects or engineers and I tell them, well, no, from my point of view. And they say, well, your point of view doesn't count. I said, no, actually, the best idea wins. So let's get into it. I'm already interested by the story of how you came to study landscape architecture, because like I said, I was reading some interviews of yours and uh, you speak about how it was almost accidental. And that's fascinating to me because 
uh, there is this sense of like grand design that we ascribe to people whose lives we see and we we see their work and we imagine that right from a very young age they moved in a straight line towards this goal and everything was intention everything was planned but that's not how that's not how not only are most lives not like this but most successful people haven't lived lives like this so tell me a little bit about falling sideways into landscape architecture what you were trying to do and where did those influences come from how has when in your early life how did you sort of evolve in your understanding of what you wanted to be well i'll start by saying that um both my parents i i had wonderful wonderful parents but they were from rural oklahoma during the depression and so the world of art and design architecture all those types of things were just completely foreign concepts and and so growing up they were to me as well but one thing that that was an education i suppose is that my my dad was an oil man and about every 2 or 3 years we would move to a different part of the world and i say world our world was louisiana and texas basically you know and and the grandparents in oklahoma so that's it's kind of a small world but that was it but we'd move from new orleans to a tiny town in west texas because that's where the next job was and they would move back to new orleans and they would move to some little town in north louisiana or something like that and um all that moving around seemed pretty traumatic at the time but by the time i was 12 years old you know we'd be pulling into a new town in that grand pontiac station wagon and i'd be looking out the window and i could tell immediately whether the next two years were going to be wonderful or whether they were going to suck based on the environment and i really didn't realize that at the time obviously but i'd look at how many trees there were and how big they were you know if they were only 5 feet tall like in west texas they don't count but 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 these kind of verdant places and places that had old architecture that that just felt homey you know not 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 glass buildings but but something that felt kind of human a beautiful town square or something that looked like a community gathering space and i think this is cool this is going to be all right and uh and then you get the completely opposite effect well not opposite but but in new orleans again very urban but a 300 year old city you know so you're you're surrounded by all this age and patina and there man a lot of history and culture and music and food and all these types of things so i got to learn really early in life that there was more than one way for a city to be or for a town to be and that those were very much the result of decisions over time so i think i was being set up for things like landscape architecture and urban design and of course i i had no idea uh i was in journalism school at first because i loved storytelling and i was a pretty good writer you know i i i was in there for a couple of years and won an award for you know outstanding young journalist type of thing but it it just didn't feel fulfilling for some reason it 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 just didn't feel like a like a fit and when you talk about this kind of 
divine architecture or something. I've always gotten those kind of, of, of urges or naggings or whatever, where you kind of feel like you're being pulled by the collar and say, no, son, you know, we're going to go, we're going to go this way now. And as a frustrated journalism student, I just found myself in the design building on campus. And I, I, I've told this story a few times, but I, it never gets boring for me. There were all these drawings in the hallway of places, you know, ranging from, from people's kind of residential plots to plazas in big cities to neighborhoods and whatnot, beautifully hand-drawn and, and beautifully colored and whatnot, and not in an architectural way, with more of a kind of human touch to it. I, I thought about being an architect and that really didn't appeal to me, but this was something completely different. And I, I, I learned that that was landscape architecture. And the fact that I could do something that would impact the world around me in a positive way, and that I could use a pencil and pens to do that. You know, I could draw all the time and, um, draw from life to learn and draw from imagination to create things at the same time. It was just almost more than I could take. And then you factor in psychology of how people react to environments and sociology, how groups interact with it and the environmental sciences involved that you've got to, uh, to deal with. It's, you know, there's an aspect of civil engineering in there where human systems interact with natural systems and you've got to figure out a way to, to do that so that both systems are happy and, uh, and, and in our business, hopefully elevate the quality of life. As a result of that, uh, there's this altruistic element to it that you're really doing it. That ultimately the client that you're doing it for is everybody, you know, and, and I just loved that about it. So that's, that's how I ended up in landscape architecture. It's almost from the time I walked through the door, it felt right. You know, I felt like I was home. That's so interesting on so many counts. Like uh, you mentioned that because you moved around quite a bit, uh, you would be in the car and you'd be pulling up to the to a new place, a new town, and you'd immediately form these impressions of whether you're going to like it or not. And I'm thinking of just that to sort of go through this cycle of even having a response to uh, the absence or the presence of a town square to the through the sizes of trees and therefore a sense of how settled this community is even that sort of inculcates feelings towards your landscape and i can see how landscape architecture might appeal to you in that sense but i'm also curious at this time about your decision to study journalism because like you mentioned in the what could be called the hierarchy of needs in your world in your family art and expression of that nature was not necessarily of high priority. I, I grew up in a time where there was great respect for those people. They used to say Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America, you know, and, and Edward R. Murrow, you know, those, those types of people were, were just really held high in the public esteem. And so it seemed like something that was honorable to do. But this was also the golden age of magazines and 
every single week, Life Magazine would show up on the coffee table and, and look and Sports Illustrated and those types of things. But Life in particular, you know, there were these photo essays of exotic places and like the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War and those types of things. And, you know, it, 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 it would occasionally have a feature on Marilyn Monroe or a James Bond movie or something like that. But most of it was pretty serious photojournalism. And I enjoyed photography. I enjoyed travel and stories. And so I thought, well, that's pretty good. But again, coming from the background that I came from, how to do that, uh, I, I had no idea. And by the time I was ready to go to school, my brother had already spent all the money for out-of-state tuition. So it's Louisiana State, here I come. And uh, I, I got into journalism school thinking that I could weasel my way, which I, I had a pretty good track record of weaseling my way into things that I wanted to do. But it just wasn't going to happen at that school. The, uh, the top graduate a couple of years before was writing obituaries for the Bogalusa Gazette, you know. And um, I'm, I'm sure that's honorable work as well, but it didn't interest me as a, as a career trajectory. And, and I missed drawing. I, I really, really missed it. And so I started, you know, just kind of kind of looking around to see what the possibilities were. Things like a, a reportage illustrator, you know, Veronica Lawler or something like that never occurred. I mean, how would a kid from Louisiana know about something like that? Or how to really make a living as an artist? You know, the artists I saw were these guys in kind of dirty clothes that hung up paintings on the fence at Jackson Square and uh, looked like they were having fun. But try telling your parents that that's what you want to do. <laughs> my next question was this that like even being attracted to drawing or wanting to wanting that to be a part of your life it has to do with the images you have of the artist life or the purpose of art in our lives and as you see it in your world so what was that what what was the art you saw that inspired you what was the idea of art for you at that time well, I guess I was also real fortunate, like the Life magazines, that when I was about five or six years old, uh, my parents discovered this show that came on in the mornings on network television, John Nagy, Learn to Draw. And have you ever heard of John Nagy? You know, he's- I have not. He was a bearded, not hippie, those weren't, those didn't exist yet, but he was a, kind of a beatnik. And he had this goatee beard and he had this slicked back kind of longish hair. And he would stand up in front of a drawing pad and look at the camera and whatnot. And for a long time, you know, until relatively recently, it was the longest running show continuously on television. And he would sell, he would market these John Nagy Learn to Draw kits. Man, I had to have one of those things. And so my, my parents sent off for it. And it came with a drawing board and a huge drawing pad. And by drawing board, one of these composite things that you could hold on your lap and kind of draw like, like we do in the city sometimes. And uh, 
pencils and smudgers and kneaded erasers and those types of things. So I thought, you know, well, this cat's on television. There's, you know, this is kind of cool. Um, but after that, there was kind of this, this long dry spell. My, my mother, bless her heart, put me in some art classes there and, and where we were living in Lafayette, Louisiana at the time. And it was horrible for me. It was just a terrible experience drawing fruit, you know, on a table or something like that. And I was only, you know, six or seven years old. And I would have cut off one of my fingers to get out of that room. It was just, it was, it was really bad for me. I'm sure it was, was great for some other people. But a few years and a few moves, we end up in this little town in West Texas. And um, it was one of these towns, you know, in West Texas, the counties are huge, but very, very few towns. And this was, I think, the only town in the huge county, a very oil-rich county, and it got all the tax revenue, and a lot of it went into the school system. So this school system was just, it was like a, a small college campus. It was amazing. And as part of that, they had a fantastic art department. And so I learned how to oil paint. I learned how to draw better. Um, I learned the second year in art, we could do any projects that we wanted to. So I learned, you know, kind of kind of coming up with things, with themes and, and those types of things. And it was just marvelous. And then we have another move and all that, you know, collapses. And, and it wasn't until college that I was really able to pick it up again. And uh, when I when I discovered design school and landscape architecture it was it was it really was like okay this is what you've been waiting for and i probably wouldn't have appreciated it if i had gone in as a stone cold freshman and kind of you know how you, how you kind of feel put upon sometimes or something you know oh, i got all this stuff to do and everything that it wasn't like that it was it was like a tremendous opportunity like my life had been saved and, uh, you know, frankly, it, that that feeling would happen again and again as I made other career moves. But, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm struck by how you mentioned these early art classes you took that put you off drawing because it reminds me of things that happened with me as well. And I feel like pre-internet, everybody who grew up before the internet living in our vicinity, just all around us, there was often just one way of doing things. Like we didn't have ideas that you could do things in other, in so many different ways. So for example, just the idea of learning to draw. Learning to draw when I was growing up meant learning to draw realistic eyes and realistic fruit, getting all the shades right and all these textures and you had to have four pencils or something. And that was tedious for me and it really put me off drawing, but I was convinced that this is the only way you can learn to draw. If you want to be an artist, this is what you do. Right. Well, it it wasn't easy at first because, again, I, I had this, this upbringing that things like sketchbooks, you know, who does that? And I didn't even know the word sketchbook, I don't think. I, we, we had cheap drawing pads that my mom would put in front of me and use that type of thing. But... Um, so so when I got to school and they said, you have to keep a sketchbook, I didn't really know what that meant. And 
as wonderful as my teacher was, there wasn't books he would put in front of us uh, that that resonated. You know, if if we're keeping a sketchbook and he's showing us Raphael's drawings, it didn't resonate with me. You know, I, I grew up instead of looking at those things, reading comic books and Mad Magazine, you know, and those types of things. And so I, I really think that this whole kind of linear way of seeing things was imprinted on me relatively early on, just kind of became part of my DNA as opposed to a, to a painter who sees things in tones. But, but that's what I love you know, drawing the fruit didn't put me off drawing. I just couldn't wait to get home so I could draw monsters and airplanes and those types of things. Once I kind of got the hang of the sketchbook thing, it became less of a burden and more something that I enjoyed getting out doing. But because a lot of the kids in that school were like me, they had the same kind of upbringing that I did. The, uh, the faculty was wise enough that if we were going to make anything of ourselves in the design world, they had to get us out of there. So we had required field trips, you know, one trip, it's a five-year curriculum. The fourth year, we went up the West Coast for two weeks. We visited all the important offices and saw how they did things. We visited the uh, award-winning projects. You know, we had lunch with people like Lawrence Halperin, you know, who, who designed the FDR Memorial in Washington, D.C., and those types of things. Talk about a life-altering experience. And that was was when I first learned to travel as well, because, you know, it, it wasn't getting in the, the station wagon and going to Grandma's house. This was really having to, you know, kind of kind of learn how to do this. And then the next year we did the same thing up the East Coast and we met all these people we had studied and heard about through all our classes and projects and whatnot. And um, that exercise, they, they, they really encouraged us to keep a sketchbook through some of that. And we were kind of a herd of 40 students and we're all looking at different things. And so it, it felt less like an assignment, and more like an opportunity. To, you know, well, I think this particular thing is very interesting. Why is it that this vertical thing at the end of the street makes me want to walk down there and see what it is? And so our, our education about environments and how they affect people started to show up in the sketchbooks. That was, was kind of a whole new level for me was, was realizing that I'm not just looking at something and trying to replicate it on a two-dimensional page. I'm really also trying to understand it and what are the implications of the things that I'm drawing in terms of how they impact a human being's experience there. Yeah, I, I'd love to hear more about that, you know, because I, I'm not a, I've never studied architecture and sketching cities for me started as an exercise to understand very, very different worlds from where I had grown up. I wanted to understand these, this small town in Wisconsin that I was living in. And so I started to draw everything and trying to feel comfortable in these foreign <laughs> surroundings and around these people who are so unlike me. Tell me a little bit about this, like this understanding through a sketchbook, what different urban features and different, the different ways that people relate to the elements of an urban life. How did a sketchbook help you to appreciate that? How did your education with around this sketchbook and this act of sketchbook keeping help you to appreciate that? Well, 
Now, I'll, I'll try to explain that with a couple of examples. And uh, for instance, if I'm standing on a street in New York as part of that East Coast trip, and I'm trying to capture that environment relatively accurately, I've got to really look closely at what the width of that street is and what the width of the sidewalks are and what that width is relative to the heights of the buildings. And what does that make you feel? You know, are you intimidated or does it feel that does does your uh, your kind of cone of vision extend beyond two stories or something? Do you really take all that in? And then when you see something off in the distance, that's kind of like a landmark. Well, what is it about that thing? And and trying to capture it, you, you've got to be aware of width and height and not only of that object, but relative to the other things in space. The, the spatial qualities of, of the place that you're in. And at a closer level, you know, you start looking at materials, masonry versus glass versus, and and how that makes you feel. I even mentioned that when I was a kid looking at this historic architecture and not really realizing that that's what it was, but some of them felt good and some of them felt off-putting. And so you start to learn why that is. And it not only opens up this this way of kind of learning how things are put together and and reactions, but it opens up this whole awareness that you didn't have before. And for a lot of designers, I think that awareness is everything. That when you're looking at a building or a product or, or fashion or whatever it is, all the decisions that go into that, and, and even if it's something like a tree, you know, well, look, there's a tree. Well, no, it's not. Look closer at a distance what those textures look like, and then get up close and see what they look like, and it's completely different. And how does that make you feel? So, and so we're trying to capture those types of things in drawings, you know, by, as an example, drawing a live oak tree at a distance and these big clumps of these leathery leaves, but you just see big clumps at a distance and you get up close and it's a completely different thing. So we draw that as well and have this record of these different visual experiences. And, uh, the, you know, the sky's the limit on something like that. It's just a matter of how far you want to take it. Right, right. I, I love how these curiosities are shared by people who have all kinds of different motivations and might have different education. But uh, it shows me that there are so many different ways to appreciate these things. Like you can come in with a knowledge or a growing knowledge of landscape architecture and you have these different rules that you understand. Like it had never occurred to me the the width of a sidewalk in comparison to the width of the street. But just as you explained this about New York, it struck me that this is the essential unarticulated difference that I have felt between New York City and Chicago, for example. And I love Chicago so much more than New York because the sidewalks are uh, are wider and you get a, a sense of the size of the city, or the vertical scale of the city. In New York, I felt like I didn't have the chance to appreciate being around skyscrapers because 
I was around so many skyscrapers and I was like, I was, uh, they, they, they just towered over me and my vision, my cone of vision, as you put it, was indeed just a couple of floors. But in Chicago, because of the, and this is how I articulated, just the space between all the things, you get a sense of how large everything is. You get a sense of the skyline of Chicago from a million different angles from inside that skyline as well. You could be on a boat on the river and you could see the skyline. You could see it from far away, north or south. But the skyline of New York is something I could only appreciate when we went across the Hudson from Hoboken and that part, that part of the city. I'm not sure what it's called, but that's the only time I could really appreciate that I'm in one of these great cities of the world and this is this is what it looks like from a distance. So it's it's really fascinating how education helps us find the words or the terminology to appreciate what we're seeing. And 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 what you're feeling, you know, try try going from New York back to some town in West Texas where are, are, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, even where the street is eight lanes wide and the sidewalks are just an afterthought because people don't matter. Cars matter and petroleum matters and those types of things and, and trying to make your way around that environment. And if you're actually walking, people stop and say, what happened? Where's your car? Where's your, where's your pickup truck? You know, or something like that. So um, understanding how that can work on your head and and really impact the way that that you feel about the world and you think about the world is um, is pretty cool. And then when you can show people in drawings, well, you know why this street feels bad. Look at these great streets that people love from all over the world, and then look at this and let's let's talk about you know why we've made these decisions and other people have made different decisions. Yeah, this this conversation, like, I wonder, does this happen enough? It feels like it's such an important part of being a citizen of whether it's a small town or a big city, the way that your city or your urban surrounding makes you feel and the role that you can play in affecting that feeling seems so important in the act of being a citizen. But so uh, I want to understand a little bit more about the practice of being a landscape architect, I guess. Like uh, these ideas of how somebody should feel in a city, is this has this been left to the landscape architects to decide for us, to help us to see it? Not necessarily. I, I think there's a lot of overlap between... Um, Architecture, landscape architecture, urban design, which is a, a whole different discipline, uh, and even some enlightened civil engineers, especially in the last 10 years or so, are starting to understand, not, not necessarily thinking about it in aesthetic terms, but how much better a city works if you don't give it all over to cars and you balance the cars with transit and with walking and with bicycling. And you give people lots of options, you know, in that way. And it, it leads to more choices and that leads to more kind of creative living at the end of the day. But that's not what drives cities. You know, you, you go through your design education and you're ready to run out and save the world with your, your pencil and your markers. And you realize that most of the world doesn't want to be saved. They like it like it is. Thank you very much. And if you persist and if you push you find out that there's economic interests behind all of that. 
and they like the status quo because it's making them money. It's selling cars and it's selling petroleum and, and all these types of things. And so if you talk about narrowing streets and widening sidewalks and that type of thing, you you will be attacked openly, but you'll also be attacked private under the table, I will say, submarined, you know, without even knowing it politically and 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 everything else. So that's one of the reasons that trying to change cities in terms of thinking about them, drawing, using all that as communications tools, it's not really a job as much as it's a calling. You know, you kind of come in like a prophet. Okay, I've I've seen all these things and I think, you know, the future is this way. But sometimes the prophet gets stoned. <laughs> You know, right? Absolutely, yeah. And that's that's part of the job. Uh, I didn't know that going in. I thought I was going to be the savior, you know, riding in on a white horse. And it's like, no, nah, man, you're you're fighting in the trenches the whole time, right? And it's never quite clear who the enemy is, because uh, exactly as you say, I remember I, I I walked around Chicago so much when we were living there. And I got this sense of certain parts of the city being what I called ungated, gated communities. There isn't an official gate here, but the, the rules are different in this part. Like you can see the way that they've got cul-de-sacs and they've cut themselves off while being in downtown Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And and that's a, a tough realization to to come to sometimes, you know, but it's... It's interesting that that you don't really know who the enemy is because if if you're at it long enough and and you take enough lumps you start to realize that they're not the enemy. It's just a different point of view and if you can really, you know, get with people on a on a kind of a soul to soul level and talk about these things, find out what motivates them and what their interests are, well, then maybe you've got a chance of, of arriving at a solution and drawing as, well, I don't know. I, I can, what's, what's, I, I can spin a yarn, you know, I, I can tell a pretty good story in front of folks and get them worked up and excited with drawings and, and you know, waving my arms and whatnot, but, it, but it's really the drawing that people focus on. And my style of drawing for all those years was purposefully left freehand as opposed to computer imagery or CAD or something like that. And rough, kind of conceptual. You could tell that it was a street and cars and people and all those types of things, but it was intentionally left kind of rough so that people didn't feel like all these ideas were set in concrete. You know, like there's room for negotiation here and there's room for your ideas. And then you ask them their ideas and then being able to draw on the spot and synthesize a conversation in drawings. It's just magic. You know, all of a sudden people aren't aren't trying to protect their turf. They're looking at the drawing and saying, wow, that's cool. But what if we did this and what if we did that? So you try to incorporate those types of things. And it's like building a storyboard. And a meeting, you know, uh, and that took me a long way, uh, being able to 
to sit in a room with the mayor and the developers and the lawyers and the architects and those types of things and listening to all this chest thumping and uh, turf protection and those types of things and then just start drawing. Don't say a word, just start drawing. And everybody wants to see what you're doing. And then the tone of the conversation changes entirely. And, uh, you know, you're really, it's, it's not either, or it's, it's yes. And right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to put it actually. And I'm thinking how this changes the tone from one of destruction to one of participatory creation. We're trying to build something rather than trying to remove something that you might cherish or might value in your life. But the process of you know, coming out of university and being a landscape architect, it sounds like there is an immersion into reality, which can be a little jarring to begin with. Like you have grand ideas of how you're going to shape the world, but you don't have the mandate to shape the world. You're part of such a larger force. What was that realization? Was that realization a little disappointing for you to begin with? How did you deal with it? It was... And, you know, it, it, at that time, when I immediately graduated, I was still living in Louisiana. And, uh, you know, I, I literally graduated thinking that I'd put up a big billboard with a drawing on it on the interstate and that all these people would just come flooding in saying, oh, thank God, we've been waiting for you so long, you know. <laughs> and and it, it ended up making a lot of people nervous. So, uh I think my secret weapon in that, that always gave me faith that, that it would work out was, it sounds like a broken record, if people know what records are anymore, uh, the drawing. Because people would look at those and they get excited, whether it represented their exact vision or not. And that ranged all the way from, again, you know, uh, residences to uh, a grand boulevard in a city. They'd see the drawings and they'd, they'd gravitate to that. And I don't know why, maybe it goes back to Mad Magazine and the comic books or something like that. But I've always had this kind of funky drawing style, you know, that almost looks a little cartoony sometimes. And for a long time, I resented when somebody would tell me that. And then I started to realize, no, that's that's not something to resent. That's my gift, you know, and, and people see that and they're they're not intimidated. They they feel like like there's an opening to to talk about it. And, you know, then they'll say, well, can I buy that for my office? Well, sure. You know, I had to sell them in front of the school library. So let's let's talk. So I, I, I guess as a young man, there was probably some resentment there, as well as in any creative field when you're starting out. The fact that you realize that nonprofit doesn't just apply to the nonprofit world. Sometimes it applies to the profit world as well. And, and you end up working for a little bit of nothing. But uh, then you kind of, at least in, in my experience, you grow out of that and start to realize that there's a much bigger picture here that you have an opportunity to impact. And while that's happening, you're also learning about yourself and you know where your, your creative strengths are. 
And uh, I, I had ended up working for a, a large firm with national offices around which for landscape architecture is unheard of. But I was drawn to them because they really valued drawing. It was it was like it was like if you're a kid who liked to draw and you got a chance to go to work for Disney. And it was that type of thing, only dealing with real environments instead of made up environments. And um, I got involved in some projects that really forced me to go inside myself and figure out what was there and to to kind of work my way out of it through my imagination and through telling stories and through drawing. And um, that changed a lot of things, including how I, I, I related to other people. Uh, being being that honest and, 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 and vulnerable, I guess, when you're putting yourself out there, it, it, it's kind of, if you're doing what you love, you know, and, and you're honest about it, people connect with that. Whether they actually agree with literally with what you're telling them or not, they know that you're coming from a good place. So, yeah, I, I think my own growth, maturity, as it were, to what extent I've got that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's done a lot in terms of, of uh, kind of moving me along a good path, I think. I like what you said about how people engage with a freehand drawing because I've spoken about it in another context with now, you know, with, with the situation today, with the way that we are surrounded by so many forms of media and this question of what is the value of an on-location sketch when you could take a picture, you could make a quick Instagram reel, you could share it with everyone in the world within five seconds of clicking. What is the point of sitting down and drawing for an hour? And I think a part of the answer is what you just said about how people react differently to a drawing versus, say, a blueprint of a landscape. How much, how much they feel they can, well, contribute to it is one 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 situation in, in a in a discussion about. Uh, designing a certain landscape, you are open to contributions, but even how much you can engage with it, I feel that changes from a blueprint to a freehand drawing. How have you found this in your experience as an artist, as an architect also? In two ways. Uh, one is internally. You know, if you or I are on a street leaning against a lamppost, which is the only real use for, it's the proper use of a lamppost, I think, is for artists to lean against them and, and to, to take in the, the scene around them. You're never going to look at that scene exactly the same way. It's going to imprint itself on your mind. And it's, it's almost like over time, it gives you a different set of glasses to look at the world with. You're going to see more deeply and experience that place more richly. And that's something that you carry around with you all the time after that. And if you're a designer, 
you know, taking a photograph is great. And, and I did that for years. But if you're sketching a thing, it burns into your brain in such a way that five years later, maybe you're working on some challenge. And it's not that you're going to recreate what you drew, but all these different things you've drawn over the years kind of come together in your unconscious in a, in a creative way. And, you know, because you've seen these things and, and just as importantly, because you've drawn them. And so they're, they're much more firm memories in your mind. Uh, you're able to do things that you never could have done if, if you haven't gone through that experience. So that's the internal part of it. The external part, I think, is um, you've got the folks like, like you were just mentioning that, that see a drawing and especially if it's kind of loose, you know, you know, if, if, if you use those technical pens to do things and whatnot, they're not nearly as open to it because that's really intimidating. But if you've got a pencil drawing or a fountain pen drawing or something like that, and it's pretty loosey goosey or whatnot, they'll, they'll relate to it and, and comment on it more easily than they would one of these really fine line or, or what's the word Photoshop montages, you know, or something like that. But another aspect of that is that I get emails or messages all the time from people that saying, your drawings make me happy. And I don't really understand why, you know, but there's a quality to them that, uh, that, that just makes me wish that I was in that place. And, uh, I think that that's just invaluable. You know, as, as urban sketchers, we talk a lot about, you know, bridging culture and language and those types of things, because drawing is such an, an international language, but we're also bridging something mentally or psychically or, or whatever it is where, you know, a friend in Texas might look at a drawing of Istanbul and say, wow, that looks cool. When previously they might have been like this and said, well, I don't know why the hell anybody would leave Texas. You know, that thing is opening people up to, to possibilities that they might not have realized were there. And man, that's a good reason to draw, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it feels like as if that's also applicable to just art as well like when we only see art as something on a pedestal something in a massive frame in an expensive museum how much do we relate to it and how much do we allow it to enter our lives like to to be like you know this this thing you said that someone reached out to you and said that it made them feel like they were at that location and i'm thinking of the value of that the feeling that you are in a place and this feeling is slipping away from us because we never are in a place we are always in our worlds uh, enclosed within our headphones we have these screens around us when we navigate our world we're always looking at one or maybe two screens all the time and this sense of being in a place is something that we're losing year by year as more and more media finds it easier to get inside our heads. Well, you're exactly right. That's a really insightful way of thinking about it. And, um, you know, if somebody sees a drawing and it makes them want to be in that place and it encourages them to go to that place, uh, I, I think that's a real service. You know, you're talking about, about 
being a good citizen early on, the way if, if you can get people interested in the life of a different place and why the architecture is different and it's not something to be afraid of, but it's something to that, that ought to just make your eyes light up and your brain do a little dance, you know. I, I think in a lot of times it's easier to see that in drawings than it is in in um in photographs. You know, it takes somebody like Felix Scheinberger, you know, you, you look at the kind of whimsical way that he draws things and then you see, oh, that's Istanbul or 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 that's Berlin or something like that. That looks cool. You know, let's 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 experience that world. And um yeah, I I there's so many reasons to love what we do, you know, and uh, I, I, as you can tell, I am pretty passionate about it. Yeah. And uh, I, I, when I visited your website, I read, I could call it your log line, and I thought it was captivating. So I've thought about different ways that I wanted to speak to you in this conversation and how I wanted to sort of get into the kind of art you make. And I haven't been able to move past that line because it is very evocative and the imagery is very good. You you said you are not like Monet in the studio, but more like Anthony Bourdain in the streets with a sketchbook. So I want you to expand on this on this image. What is Anthony Bourdain with a sketchbook like? Well, first of all, I think what I said was I never saw myself as Monet in the studio. And and that's very true. You know, when we were talking earlier about envisioning life, uh, drawing and making images, the idea of being in a studio and, um, you know, doing big oil paintings and things like that never interested me nearly as much as being outside and drawing but but my relationship with with drawing and travel and cities and all those types of things kind of overlap and i guess when i when i started i was a, a big fan of anthony bourdain almost from the the get-go but when i realized that it wasn't about food really it was about connections and it was about not only getting to know a place, but getting to know, to know the people in the place with that doorway, that kind of entrance card of food. And here I am with all these kind of similar overlapping areas of interest. I, I've gotten to the point in my life where if I'm not traveling and drawing and experiencing new cities, uh, making connections with people. I'm, I'm just not a happy camper. You know, that's, that's the adrenaline that I need and, and need to keep feeding in order to do that. And it's not necessarily, it's not about the drawings as much as it is kind of this mutual appreciation that you have with the people that you meet. And they see that, that you're taking the time to actually look closely and appreciate where they live. And maybe you're, they think you're appreciating it more than they do because you're coming in with these fresh eyes and seeing things. And I used to tell our, our Texas Urban Sketchers group all the time, I said, if, if somebody walks up to you, don't shoo them away or, or something. Be open 
to a conversation if they ask you a question or something like that. But more often, they're just going to look over your shoulder and they're going to see that building that you're drawing with all the people in front. They're going to look up at the real thing. They're going to look back at your drawing and look up. And I'll guarantee you they never looked at that building that way before. They're going to see things they never saw. And maybe they're going to appreciate the historic aspects of it in a way that they never did. So that when it comes up on the planning docket that the thing's going to be torn down, maybe you've got a stake in seeing that your point of view is heard that it shouldn't be torn down. Uh, I apologize. I forgot what your original question was because I got off on all this other stuff. But I hope we'll, I we'll, cir- we'll circle around. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here I want to I want to jump a little in another direction because uh, now I'm thinking about how you know just seeing a place in a new light, and it feels to me like that is the great point of any art, just to help us see things in a new way. And sometimes what we seek from art beyond just you know things like whether it's beautiful whether it's got all the colors right or all the lines are straight lines like i feel like those things are so overrated what we really want is permission from the artist to see our world in a different way i think yeah that's very true in my case especially with the urban design background you're by nature an optimist you have to be in order to to think about new environments and things like that and so i tend to draw things you know disney draws things in an optimistic way and i tend to do the same type of thing and hopefully you know some of of that feeling and that emotion is transmitted through that but there's also this this thing that happens with great movies, films, or or great books and paintings is that it kind of transports you. You're you're absorbed into that world, as as you were saying. And um, that is something that I've started to think about more seriously just in the last two or three years of, you know, does, does this drawing communicate? Yeah. Well, does it transport you? And if it doesn't, how can I depict things in such a way that, that it, it might be able to do that? Or if I want people to, to deeply sense the sense of the place, what are the factors that I'm missing? And, and that's when I started getting more and more interested in light, you know, and not necessarily light on the fruit bowl, but we're we're in this space in a city and and the difference in the light between brazil and italy you know or something like that and how does that that work on your mind and how do i capture that this take this sketch to the next level you know and really work with those types of things and um picking up on the emotional effects of color choices for instance and in my particular work line quality you know, can can we loosen it up and make them more exciting so that, you know, it's it's kind of elevating the excitement level. At the same time, hopefully it's transporting you to a different place. It's, it's kind of somewhere between the real place and imagination. There's this quote that I come back to very often. It's by Kandinsky, who is considered the father of surrealism. 
let me just read this quote out to you and I'd love to hear what you think. He said, uh, lend your ears to music, open your eyes to painting and stop thinking. Just ask yourself whether the work has enabled you to walk about in a, in a hitherto unknown world. If the answer is yes, what more do you want? And I think about this quote, especially in terms of what we think art should give us because there are, there are confusing notions of this and evolving ideas of what art is supposed to give us. There is a, a sense that art should tell us how to live or it should give us some very immediate value. And this quote to me sort of resets the expectations a little bit and helps us come back to the basics of it's just a way to see something else. I agree with that. Um, I don't know. The part about not thinking about it is is what really strikes me because you have no idea how much thought went into it when the artist was making it in the first place. You know, Bob Dylan used to get all kind of worked up because people would assign all these meanings to his songs that well, if that's what floats your boat, you know, that's just fine. But uh, he never came out and tried to explain to people. That's that's one of the things that bothers me a little bit about um, when I, I, I go to hear an artist speak. If it's a lot of jargon that I don't necessarily understand and there's a lot of hubris there, it's like, no, I want to I want to see the real thing. You know, that's 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 part of all this is the quest to find the thing that's not bullshit, you know, to find the real thing. And um, there's there's another aspect for it for me is that I, I don't consciously think too much about whether what I'm doing is art. I, I every day, get up and journal three pages or so before dawn. And um, that's been a, a kind of a, a discipline and a spiritual practice that I've done for about 20 years now. And I've got volumes, you know, of these things. But one of the, the things that I get out of that is sometimes pretty clear direction, even if it's just one step of this is the way, you know, this is the work you're given to do. And you either take the next step or it shows you a side path or something like that. And so I'm trying to listen to that and what I decide to draw or whether I decide to accept a travel workshop or something like that is driven by that, that kind of inner voice, if you will. And uh, I think I decided a long time ago that that inner voice and creativity are inseparable, you know, at least in, in my case. Um, I'm one of these people that that believes that there's this, this stream or this light beam of creativity that exists that doesn't care if you know about it or not, but the ideas are there, you know, and, and um, 
is that Annie Dillard, the writer, said one time, I can't make the light, but I can do things that put me in the path of it and intercept ideas and, and that type of thing. You know, there's 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 great interviews with, with songwriters and whatnot, you know, Bono, those types of people that, well, yeah, I, I didn't write this song. I just channeled it. It just came through me. And that sounds like, you know, hubris, but it's really very humble to say that this isn't me, you know, it's just kind of coming through. And then the next interviews with somebody like Paul Simon that says, that's bullshit. This is a job. And I work at my job very hard, you know, that, that kind of thing. But, but for me, it's one of those things where um, if I, if I really open myself up and listen, these ideas or whatever, just, just come and I feel compelled to do them. It's like an assignment. Okay, kid, you know, let's see what you got, whether you're comfortable with it or not. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, the part where we are simply waiting uh, or hanging around while these ideas occur to us, like just in place for them. I think even that, like the a part of work is just inculcating that attitude that I am going to be receptive and I'm going to tap into the energy or the ideas or the creativity that flows around me. And these are, of course, these words we put in afterwards to articulate what it was because we don't really know how to how to quite put an image to this thing like i feel like so much of jar and this comes in the way of appreciation as well like there's so much jargon that has already entered our minds before we look at something and we only interpret it in terms of those jar those bits of jargon those are the that's the vocabulary that allows us to not only explain it to others but also to explain it to ourselves and both for the good and the bad yeah, you know, that's one of the, uh, everybody's got that. And it, whether you call it the glasses you see things through or the, the filters around your mind or whatever. And um, that was one of the big benefits for me of a real design education where the first part of it is largely unlearning, you know, to, to try to drop as many of those prejudices and, and those ruts of mental activity that that you find yourself in when you're about that age and you come in thinking, well, I know how the world works. And, you know, after a couple of years of unlearning, you realize, I don't know how anything works. You, you know, you mentioned Anthony Bourdain earlier for, for years, he only had one tattoo and that tattoo was Latin roughly translated meaning I am not sure of anything which is just another way of saying, I'm not going to come into a situation with a lot of preconceived notions. I'm going to be open and, and just see what's there. And if you're ever going to design anything that, uh, that has any originality to it at all, even if it's combining you know, things in, in a creative way, uh, You've got to stop saying, well, this is how they did it in Waco or something, and, and, and we'll just do it like that. So that unlearning served me really well through my design career, but now traveling and sketching, 
it serves me really well also because when you come into a new city, uh, if you come in with a lot of preconceptions of, oh, these, you know, these people in Istanbul are different than me and I'm just, I, there's got to be pickpockets everywhere and it's, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing. Or, well, the French are going to be snooty to me, so I may as well beat them to the punch, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but but rather being open and be putting yourself in the position of receiving something, you know, uh, that's that's a whole other world that traveling and sketching can can do for you. And it's like I was saying earlier, if, if you're doing that and you're really turned on by it and people come and see what you're doing, you, you'll make a connection. You know, that's happened so many times. Does this feeling of um, does this feeling conflict? The, you know, the feeling that you, the attitude that you imbibe as an artist versus the the structures that you have to impart to people in some sense as an educator, as as a teacher of uh, urban sketching or taking people on workshops. Do these do these two ideas conflict? Teaching people how to how to also unpackage their mountain of jargon that keeps them from seeing things no not for me i see the whole thing as kind of a process of liberation you know and you have especially graduate students that have been doing other things for a while you know i've had graduate students that were biologists and lawyers and executives in business. And I, I had a Russian mathematician that was very, you know, logical and structured and, and this type of thing. And um, if you can kind of open their eyes to some possibilities and use that as a way to set aside judgment and set aside preconceptions, um, that's got to be a foundational step. And, um, a lot of it is foundational attitudes. If if you're not open-minded coming in, you better get that way pretty soon, or you're not going to be able to to you know deal with these creative challenges as they come up. Uh, you know, in landscape architecture, you've got kind of best practices in those types of things, but every single town or every single site that you walk onto is different. So you have to adapt and adjust and, and figure out, you know, how you're going to, to deal with completely different challenges and the people are different and the politics and the economics and all that thing are different. So um, you, you can't go in with a mindset that you know how all this works and, and give them a, a formula. You know, it's, it's, it's got to be something that that's really kind of kind of coming out of the situation itself. It's like Michelangelo used to say that David's already there. I've just got to remove the parts of the stone that aren't David. And it's, you know, if, if you're, you're open, you find a lot of times that the solution to the problem is already inherent in the problem itself. Uh, you just have to uncover all the layers of stuff to get to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so well put. You mentioned the sketchbook as it was for you over this period when you were a student. So when you start practicing as a landscape architect, when you join university to become a lecturer and professor, and uh, you're also an artist a little later, how has your relation with the sketchbook evolved in these different phases of your life? 
Well, I guess early on coming out of school, uh, particularly in things like architecture, landscape architecture and whatnot, you, you come in with basically, it's almost slave labor. And you're working very long hours for very little pay. And there's almost not enough breathing room for creativity and in, including, you know, carrying around a, a sketchbook and whatnot. And after a while, I started just taking off from the group in the office and whatnot during lunch and just drawing the neighborhood, drawing anything that I could walk to, basically. And um, I was also taking advantage of situations. You know, I used to work for a, a parks department. My, my first real job in Fort Worth at City Hall they don't care anything about drawing necessarily unless it can help them forward their interests. So I would just kind of change around my assignments so that they, they said, well, we want this. And I'd give them that, but I'd give them a stack of drawings at the same time. And it didn't take very long for them to start coming to me and saying, we, we need some of those cool drawings for this idea that we've got for the river bluff, you know, or something like that which is what got me into the, the corporate firm where they love to draw, which is what eventually got me out of the corporate firm and, and, and kind of doing my own thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, just this idea of doing our own thing. Like, I think about it a lot because I come from a part of the world where it's not always been regarded as a positive thing. So in more collectivist societies where your sense of self-identity is not always your individual self-identity, but it is comprised of the way you relate to your family, your community, your neighborhood, your city. The idea of simply doing what you want is not seen as a positive virtue. It has to fit in with all of these other relations. It has to fulfill needs and it has to it has to tick a lot of other boxes than simply what you want. So I'm fascinated by people who, who do this with their life. I have found that I rebelled most of my life against these, these expectations and obligations and have been fiercely individualistic for all the good it has done to me and all the perhaps there is a lot of bad that I have not uh, come to realize about it. I'm sure there's something lurking ahead. I'll find out soon. <laughs> but uh, I'm thinking about how when you took these decisions and you've taken a lot of these decisions in different phases of your life, let's move away from the sketchbook for a little bit because I'm very curious about this. It seems to me that you have chosen creativity and autonomy of to some extent and design freedom over simply what someone would call the next rung on the ladder. Tell me about some of these decisions, when they came into your life, and what motivated the choice that you made. Right, right. Well, um, I guess it, it probably started with when I, I changed majors in school. Not that journalism is necessarily the path to power and riches, you know, but that, that I needed to be doing what I felt called to do, which at that time, I only knew that it involved drawing somehow. And uh, you get out of school and I went, I mentioned uh, going to work for City Hall and 
kind of kind of designing my own niche as a designer in that bureaucratic setting. And it got the attention of the department head, and then it got the attention of the mayor, and then some of the city fathers that saw opportunities there. And because I had done so well, they wanted to boot me up into like department head, and and then you know who knows after that. Well, that's not about creativity, and it's not about the the altruism with which you know we we kind of i think approach design and even drawing with so that's when i knew i had to start looking for other opportunities i i got into the what the kind of what i called the disney type thing with the uh the national firm and God, I couldn't have had a better situation in terms of drawing what I love to do and, and changing the world with it. But there came a point where I just felt I was being pulled another way at the same time that they were telling me, we're going to have a seat for you on the board of directors, and we're probably going to need a new president here before too long. And I mean... I still question that decision sometimes, but but when I when I really think about it, I, I couldn't have done it any other way. But that's when I said bye. You know, I've got to pursue this 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 different kind of path. Um, with with my partner and I kind of dissolving the firm, and then uh, you know devoting all my time to writing the book and to urban sketching and the workshops and all that type of thing was another kind of big dramatic change where, uh, I mean, there's lots easier ways to make a living, you know, <laughs> but, but it just seemed like what I was called to do. It's the work that I was given to do. And that's always mattered more to me than anything else, except, you know, my kids' welfare, uh, that, that trumps everything else. But yeah, that's, it's not always been easy, and I've questioned those decisions. When I was about 30, I thought about, well, I should just go to law school or something. You know, that's kind of the last bastion of scoundrels. I should, should just sell out and, and, uh, and, and go for the money. And don't get me wrong, I, you know, public defenders and, and public servants and those types of things, I have tremendous respect for them. Uh, but my wife who knows me better than, than anyone said, you weren't born to be a damn lawyer. You know, you're born to do what you're doing. And we just got to get through this hard period right now. And we will, and, and it'll all be, be beautiful. But uh, yeah, there were some, I always felt like the direction was clear. I always had that, that inner voice. It's like, why is it so hard, you know? And in terms of that kind of versus interacting with the community and family and, and all those types of things, I always felt, and I know that a lot of creative people feel that ultimately what we're doing is for the world around us. You know, there, there's, there's this, I, I used the word already, but there's this sense of altruism to it that, um, we're, we're hoping that it's shining a light somehow, you know, that, that, that 
we're making the world a better place uh, just by virtue of doing what we feel like we're supposed to be doing and, and that you're really passionate about, whether you realize how you're changing the world or not, you know, that, that doesn't really matter. Uh, I got, you know, one of the, my most treasured possessions is I, uh, I got a letter from a professor in Iran, a woman, <clears throat> many years ago, asking me if she could do a translation of my book into what she called Persian. I don't know if she meant Farsi or, or, or if that's something different, but can I do that? And so I gave her the business answer, which was, I don't own the rights to that, but I'll give you the publisher's name and you can talk to them about it. And she came back and said, no, you don't understand. We don't, you know, we're not bound by American copyright law. She says, I'm asking you human to human if it's okay if I do this. And I gave her the same bullshit answer. And then she sent me a couple of photographs of her class of female college students and full burkas and all that, holding up versions of my drawings that they had done from a bootleg copy of my book. And one of them had was holding up a sign that said James Richards. And 20 more of them are holding up these drawings. And I just lost it, man. And I'm about to lose it now. But the thing was that I, I got right back with her and I said, you do whatever you want to. And you just just make sure that if you need anything else to let me know. And, uh, and, and I haven't, I didn't do it for her because she didn't ask, but I've since had professors in Turkey and other places that, that get in touch and say, my, my school dropped all its drawing classes for computer classes 10 years ago. And now they're realizing that we're missing something. Uh, not in, in the humanity of what we do. How did you put your courses together? How did, how did you do this? And people thought I was crazy, but I sent them my syllabus. I sent them all my lecture notes. I sent them my PowerPoints for each lecture. And I said, you can adopt this whole cloth or you can change it as much as you want, but just don't give up. That's such a great gesture and you're exactly right. Like sometimes we get tied up in these processes and systems and we lose sight of how much of the world exists outside the system. So, you know, accessing books, for example, this was incredibly difficult for me before, like, and I have d illegally downloaded so many books, like so many, so many important things that I really wanted to learn. And when I was a student, I justified it simply as, you know, it not being available in my, in my environment and I want it, therefore I'm getting it. And I was excited by the possibility that I could download a PDF of someone's book that I would never, ever be able to see in my life. So there was that thrill of it. But really, now that I look at it, I think about how much knowledge and how much information we have that is barricade that is gate kept in various different ways from other parts of the world and what a great thing it is to be able to open that gate and to just let someone in who would otherwise not have a chance at all well yeah i agree with that it all comes down to i was listening to your conversation with rita sabler and she mentioned more than once it all comes down to why you're doing this 
you know, in the first place, that the why matters a whole lot more than what, how you do it, you know, are, are those types of things. And, um, you know, why you're doing it, I think, I think at the end of the day or why I'm doing it is so that people tell me all the time, oh, gosh, you're, you're, you're doing this lost art. Well, it's a lot less lost than it was 20 years ago. You know, all of a sudden we've got people all over the world that are drawing. And I think that the the world's a better place for it because of the awareness and because of the cultural bridges and and those types of things. Um, I, I got a note shortly after my book was published that said they're adopting your book for the public school system in the Philippines. Now, it's going to be paperback and your your royalties are already almost nothing, but but they're really going to be nothing, you know, from this. And I said, just the thought of those kids running around with my book and laying it in the, the ground and, and copying things, that's worth more than than the royalties. And and with my royalty rate, it's worth a lot more than the royalties. So <laughs> the the dollar is just one way to assess our value, right? Like the the impact and the 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 value of our work but sometimes we get so lost in this number because it is so easy to grasp we think that this is the only number that matters and as a as a former engineer i have been biased towards measurable numbers like part of my education has been about how to get useful numbers out of something that doesn't have that doesn't have measurements otherwise so i used to work on as a mechanical engineer, I used to work on human reflexes and the human body. So much of it is just the things we observe, and then we try to find a way to describe it. And then you try to attach numbers to it. And as an artist, I have tried to do the same thing with my work. Uh, since switching from engineering to art, one of the biggest difficulties for me was, how do I know if I did a good job today? There is no, there's no metric around me. There's no way to measure my progress as a percentage in terms of man hours. There's, there's just, there's just nothing. I, at the end of a week, how do I know I had a good week? And well, yeah, I understand that, you know, the, the design professions are going more and more toward trying to quantify, uh, especially in academics, because they they look at the work that the engineering school does and they look at the medical school and the nursing school and you can quantify all that stuff you've got to justify your budget quantitatively somehow and where it has taken landscape architecture for instance is that you go out and you observe and and you see how successful places are by the numbers of people that use them and the kinds of things that they're doing or the pedestrian count on a particular sidewalk and is it different if it's a blank wall rather than gallery windows or something like that and and i think all that's very useful information and can inform what we do the danger is also what's happening now is that you start to develop uh, directives and say, well, now your thing has to be all these different, has to have these quantitative qualities or it's not going to be successful. And uh, boy, that doesn't always work either. So you, you've, you've got to have insight and perception. You've got to be sensitive to the context of what you're doing. 
and take all that quantitative stuff with a grain of salt. I'd say at the end of the day, if you feel good with what you've done, then there's something there. It reminds me of this quote that I read ever since numbers sort of infiltrated all of our lives with COVID in this completely different way. It said that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a useful measure. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, that's much more succinct than the story that I just told. But I'm going to remember it. I'm going to remember it. Yeah, it's a useful one. And it it the meanings are multifaceted. And I unwrap a new layer of understanding the more I have it in the back of my head as I navigate things. Uh, you said this really interesting thing to me about, uh, we were talking about progressing in a profession and we were talking about ladders. And you said this interesting thing that because you were doing so well, they wanted to promote you to a management position and there were even bigger, juicier carrots ahead of that as well. Uh, have you heard of the Peters principle? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I think you like this one. I'm full of quotes in this conversation. <laughs> so <laughs> Peter's principle says, in any organization, an employee rises to the level of their incompetence. And that's exactly what would have happened to me. You know, as, as I would get into the, these positions that I had no business being in. And that's happened to me before, even in the nonprofit world, where I got into a, a nonprofit role as a volunteer for really altruistic purposes. And then, well, you should be this and you should be president. And then, and then you become that and you suck. You know, you, you should have stayed in this advisory capacity and really, you know, talk about what you, you knew what you were doing. But um, yeah, that, that rising through the levels, I, I really value this, this kind of horizontal thing, I think, where uh, you realize that rather than going up to the next rung on the ladder, that you can do a lot of things. And actually, you can do a lot of things well. You know, one of the people that I, I just dearly love and admire is Uma Kelker. I don't know if you've done an interview with her or not, but my goodness, you know, she, she's she's a brilliant engineer she's turned into one of the great fine artists, you know, that that's in demand for conferences and things like that. I don't know if you saw the urban sketching series that she put together when she was in Minnesota last summer, you know, about the whole, uh, all, all the unrest there around the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, it was just heart-wrenching to read her stories and see her drawings. And she's a mom on top of all that. And, you know, to, to, to have somebody that can embrace such radically different things and to realize there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's actually something quite good with it. And maybe I can be a model for other people. And um, I, I, I think that that's just marvelous. And uh, she's probably had situations as well. I think women have them more often than men, where you've got to make a hard choice between the next rung and what really speaks to your values, you know, and, and, and what you think is important. But I, I've, I've always gone the values route. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Uma and I spoke in one of the earliest episodes I did. I think it was episode four, 
Oh, cool. Um, wow. Uh, the first early episodes that I recorded, I recorded with people that I had actually met in real life because uh, I I was still kind of getting around this business of talking to people about art in an audio format with no visual element attached to it. There were all these unanswered questions. So I thought I would eliminate one level of difficulty by only sticking to people that I've otherwise met and that are, or I've communicated with extensively. So at least we have this equation between us that's settled. So it's one of those early conversations which I now look at and I just feel like I almost shortchanged them because I was not quite well-versed with the idea of having a podcast. I wasn't sure of the little things I could do. And I want, so I, I've, been, I've been trying to get Uma to come back because I want to talk to her as a person who knows how to talk to artists at this point. <laughs> but, I'll text uh, this... her and tell her that, that she needs to come back. Yeah. Yes, yes, please do. <laughs> this reminds me of one of the other things that I was thinking about. It's something I've uh, spoken with a lot of artists about. And I phrase it sort of as in my life as the importance of playing games. I grew up playing a lot of games. These were offline games, so they were real sports with people. They were games I played with the action figures I had when I was very young. And then there were these computer games. And I really have a deep love for all kinds of, of what games do for us. Why do we play games? Why do we play Monopoly? Why do we play the game of life? There was this, uh, that's actually a board game, which I enjoyed very much when I was young. Scotland Yard, things like that. It's because games are a play, work as a model for life in different ways, different aspects of our life. And they help us. There, there's a very clear success metric. There's a very clear metric for losing. And there's a very clear path for how you can go towards success. And we play games in order to sort of understand how this works. But when we come to life and really living, I think we abandon this attitude to our detriment. And the, what I'm speaking about is, the idea that you can have your own metric of success or your own, if, if it's not even a quantified metric, your own idea of happiness or success, just the value you place upon your happiness is also different from person to person. And then to live life with intention so that you get to play the kinds of games you want to play. And here I'm thinking about whether you want to draw or whether you want to oversee lots of people. That's another kind of game. It has its own success metrics. It has its own failure metrics. It has its own little challenges. What are your daily challenges? If you did choose to join that board of directors, what were the things you would be thinking about on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis? What are the things you would no longer be thinking about? This is a choice that you made about which games you want to continue playing and which are the games you'd rather not get into. So thinking about it this way, it seems to me that it should be fairly simple for people to be selfish and to think really about what they enjoy doing. But it doesn't seem to work that way. A lot of people seem to keep themselves inside games that they feel obligated to play rather than the ones that really give them joy. Why, why is this? Why is it so hard? Why is it always the exception that somebody values their own idea of what they want to do over what traditional success looks like? 
Well, I, of course, can't answer that except from my <clears throat> my own point of view. But um, I just assumed that I'd always go the way of how success looked. You know, I had four brothers and mom had professions picked out for all of us. Uh, I was supposed to be the lawyer, you know, and my my older brother was going to be the doctor. And of course, none of that happened like it did. Um, And it wasn't until college or so that that I realized that if if I denied this thing that that I just felt this compulsion for, even though it was kind of foggy still, you know, as as, as things are at that age, you know, I, I just leave myself twisting by a rope, you know, in the wind and and never really realizing what that thing was. And to some degree, I still feel that way. And, you know, I'm 67 years old, but sometimes I think, you know, if, if I walk out there and get hit by a bus and that's it, what I'm going to, I won't be regret, regretting anything, I guess, because I'll be roadkill, but, but what I, I feel like I would regret more than anything else is if I left a lot on the table, you know, if I wasn't able to be the artist that I was supposed to be, not for my own selfish reasons, but because you'll never know how you're impacting other people when you do that. You know, you, you, we, we talked about Uma just a second ago. Think of all the people she's inspiring. By, by doing that kind of thing. And I don't know how she feels about, you know, um, if, if she's reaching her potential or not. But I, I can tell you that that's something that, that drives me a lot. And I never was interested in whether or not I could, I could, I could reach somebody's, even, even my parents when I was young, notion of, uh, the American dream type of success with a, a suit, you know, and, and all those types of things. Now, those those are, are kind of, of objective things to look at, but underlying what I was doing was that you, whether you were going to be an artist or anything else, there was this foundation of excellence that you had to be as good as you could possibly be and if you're going to go for it, not squander that opportunity by, by you know, doing it halfway. The other was, was leadership, that you weren't put here, you know, to, to follow somebody else's idea of what you should be doing. Be a leader, whether you're a, a lawyer or an artist or a doctor or whatever you are, if you've got those kind of qualities in you, it's incumbent upon you to exercise those things. And so when I went into landscape architecture and, and, and later on just into pure urban design and drawing, it was my own path, but it was also underlined with that idea that you had to be as good as you can be and that you had to, to exercise leadership as part of that, not just of your little group but of the communities you worked with. Yeah, I'm thinking about this idea of 
understanding your qualities and then exercising uh, expressing them the best way that you can like so i read a lot of things and i read some stuff by nietzsche recently the philosopher nietzsche and he talks about the will to power and so his general thesis about the world and he's one of the early existentialists before existentialism really took form in the 20th century is that life is meaningless and because it's meaningless it we are free to do whatever we want and with this comes the responsibility to figure out what you want so i like this balance of freedoms with responsibilities every responsibility brings a, a freedom from another perspective and every freedom brings a responsibility from another perspective so even with great power comes great responsibility power implying that you have the freedom to exercise your power you now have the responsibility to exercise it with caution or with with uh with a presence of mind of or consideration for things that matter to you so uh, let me go back to cycle back to nietzsche when he says will to power he says that every person is obligated to express the truest version of themselves and before they do that they are obligated to figure out what is the truest version of themselves that they should then exercise and when you do that you exercise your will to power so i want to talk about this with respect to how you came to be an artist how this journey of art began for you and how it is distinct from this journey of expressing yourself creatively through architecture before we do that let's take a quick break maybe a couple of minutes let's recharge and have a glass of water and we can resume our conversation you enjoyed listening to this first part to recap the best ideas and to share your thoughts don't forget to visit my substack post using the link in the show notes the sneaky art podcast is an independent show produced by me and supported by fans and listeners such as yourself it takes a lot of time and effort to do things right to do them particularly in the way that i want and i'm glad to have an engaged audience that cares so deeply about the work i put in Thank you to everyone that supports the show and all the people who signed up to become Sneaky Art Insiders. If you like this episode, tell someone else about it. If you like this episode and would like to support me, use the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee. If you like this episode and you also like this show and if you would like to take a sneak peek behind the scenes for how it gets done, consider becoming a Sneaky Art Insider. Help keep this show going for less than 1 cup of coffee per episode. Find links in the show notes. Part 2 of my conversation with James Richards releases next week and I'm so excited to share it with you. See you then.